The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. Thank you for listening. For more information on Story City, you can find us online at storycitychurch.com or on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Story City. Hello, everybody. Please stand with me for the reading of 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 12. Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? Do not be deceived. No sexually immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, or males who have sex with males. No thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbally abusive people, or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. And some of you used to be like this, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Thank you, Phil. Good morning, church. I'm going to start my clock so that I don't go for an hour accidentally. Um, welcome back. Um, this is my second sermon this week on First uh, Corinthians, so we'll be finishing this up today. I do want to commend one thing. It was interesting to watch this week as the earthquake in Turkey unfolded. Um, our Granada Hills locations purposely spent time praying. On that, um, Patrice and I got into a text fight over who got to pray about it today. I said, let's have you pray because A, it'll be awesome, and B, I'll have more time to preach. So that's where we landed on that. But I also want to commend those who are our Armenian friends. This is not easy to pray for a country that is hurt you so much. And that's where I think if you were here for our last preaching on the gospel the hurt and the hurters found at the feet of the cross is what our goal is. And so I commend you for that hard work of praying for a country that probably has been hard to pray for. So well done. We're going to pray real quick and then we're going to jump into this and we're going to finish out 1 Corinthians 6. God, we just thank you for our time together. We thank you for those who are here in this room. We thank you for your, your kindness to us. I pray that you would bless us. We don't need more of me, we need more of you. Help me to be faithful to what you've called us to preach. Amen. All right, so we're going to continue walking through uh, Corinthians chapter 6. As many of you know, this was a church um, in a small little city, a big city actually, called Corinth. And I had the team queue up a couple things. Would you guys pop up these slides for me real quick? If you're like me, you love a little geography, because you're like, where is stuff? All right, so this is Greece. This is Corinth, that's the city, that's Athens, it's about 100 miles away. This is Turkey, right, about the other other side of Turkey is where the earthquake took place. Over here would be Italy, Rome would be here, this would be the Mediterranean Sea, and to the south would um, uh, would be North Africa. Corinth was positioned on this very small isthmus here, so pretty much basically land and sea went through this, which made this city incredibly wealthy as it sat in a really strategic location. Next slide. This is downtown Corinth. I think it was taken by a drone, but I'm not entirely sure about that. It's missing one thing that I thought was important. You just get a sense for scale um, on this. There's actually three really important temples that existed. The temple to Apollo would be right here in downtown. Temple of Octavia, 
No idea what that one was. And there's, more importantly, the Temple of Aphrodite, which was actually built on the hill right outside overlooking the city. So if you think about this as kind of like our valley here, it was about the same size. This would have been right in downtown Burbank with um, the Temple to Aphrodite kind of sitting up on the hill looking over. And there's some other stuff in here that is probably interesting. All right, next slide. Nothing like a good painting to kind of bring it to life. This is obviously, this guy is, really loves his chariot and his horses. Besides that, though, I'm guessing this is on its way up to probably one of the temples on the bottom. But you can begin to see some of the buildings that we just described down here. So right on the sea, surrounded by islands. All right, make sense? All right, so this is Corinth. One thing I think you'll notice, of course, is that Corinth is situated on that strategic route. About 200 years before Paul writes this letter, the Romans got mad at Corinth and completely destroyed it, like leveled it to the ground, not like knocked it over a little bit, but brought it to the ground where there was nothing left. For about 150 years, it went uninhabited, and then they rebuilt the city. And as part of that rebuild, they built the three temples we just mentioned, Apollo, Aphrodite, and Octavia. What was interesting about Corinth at that time is they were extremely free in their culture and philosophy. You could add to the gods, take parts you liked, leave parts you didn't like. You could explore most anything you wanted in your thoughts and feelings. It wasn't as if you had to only worship Apollo or Aphrodite. You could certainly take what you wanted and explore any part of your thinking or feelings that you wanted. And it wasn't just all about religion. There was a level of cruelty that existed. There was Colosseum-like games that happened. And you could explore most any form of sexual expression offered or celebrated in Corinth. And if you had the money, Corinth had it to sell. Does that make sense? But a lot of these things merged. It wasn't just a matter of like you could go. It wasn't Vegas. It was Vegas and church meeting together. The city of uh, the the, um, the temple to Aphrodite believed there was a thousand sacred prostitutes as part of worship, not as an extension, but part of worship. So that was part of the service. Somehow, all this came together. But of course, it wasn't. The prostitutes were not simply just purchased; they were provided from the lower class in Corinth. So the lower class was called the Horea. It's where we get the word whore from. And once in your lifetime, you were required, as a citizen, to pay uh, to do your do your part and become a prostitute for the day up in up in the um, the temple. Does that make sense? So that's that's an interesting part of the city's dynamic. And of course, if you were in that lower class, you were non-Greek, so you were a foreigner, and you were probably, in one sense, in some sort of bondage or servitude. In fact, Corinth became so well-known, there was an expression that said, be careful, not everyone can afford Corinth. It was basically this idea that said, if you were a merchant coming in, you've got to keep an eye on your money because this is a place where your money goes quickly um, because you could purchase whatever you wanted. But it wasn't just a hedonistic society. There was a part of it that was philosophical. It was a melting pot of ancient Greek thinking that centered on logic and human experience, right? Right? So there was this logical piece that said, can I imagine this? 
Does the, how do I make sense of the world around me? That was the biggest question they were asking in Greek philosophy. And logic and experience were driving to them what made living well look like. And they had arrived at a, a conclusion that was leading the way at that time. So their philosophy in Corinth at this time, through a lot of philosophical discussion and a lot of thinking, came down to this. There are three things you need to pursue in life in order to be happy and healthy. Those things are food, drink, and by the way, that's not hydration. This isn't a quest for good water. Drink and sex. And your job in life was to pursue all three of those in order to live your best life. And if you deprived yourself of one of those three things, you would find yourself suffering. The city became known for this, and they lived it out in their fullest. But this is also the city where Paul comes to preach the gospel. And so this is the letter to Corinth, is to this exact society that he's working through. Does that make sense? All right. But it also means that as people get saved and come to church, they start showing up with lots of questions. And they're trying to figure out how Christianity works. They're bringing all these questions, and this is what Paul is writing them. Part of this letter to Corinth is not about just some random thoughts Paul had. These were questions that he had been asked. And so he's writing to them to explain better how they might live. But he's also writing it in light of the Corinthian philosophy and culture. This brings us to the heart of the letter that we're at right now in chapter 6. That Paul begins to list, I believe it's seven or eight or nine things, very specifically to answer the question, which is, what is the standard for morality? The Corinthians had worked very hard to try to figure out what moral standards looked like. And I want to read through that list and then talk briefly about what Paul was trying to accomplish and then work through some other questions at this time. Does that work? All right. So it says this, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Neither fornicators, those are those whose sexual relations outside of marriage, idolaters, putting worth or something at a high, something higher than God, adulterers, sexual relations outside of marriage. Um, in some passages, it uses the word effeminate. Those are effeminate. This was a exchanging your body for something else. It was a form of prostitution. Um, or homosexuals, having sexual relations with the opposite sex. Or thieves, taking other people's things. Or covetous, wanting other people's things, position, reputation, or power. Drunkards, allowing alcohol to control you. Revilers, verbally abusive. Swindlers cheating someone out of deception and out of something. First of all, a couple observations from this list. This is not a complete list of all God's things. If you're sitting there going, whew, murder's not on there. (laughs) Free to go on that. That's not what's being said here. Remember, Paul is writing to this Corinthian culture, and he specifically calls out some things that they were wondering. How do all these things fit in the moral code for God? One half of them are all sexually related issues. A quarter of them relate to things of power. And then there seems to be about a quarter that I call miscellaneous. Just things that are not tied to anything. But what does Paul mean by this list? Does it mean that God doesn't want me? He says, if I'm on this list, if I've done something on this list, it says that I will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's not what Paul is saying. He's being clear on one point, though. He is saying that, God's way and God's standard is clear. 
and that those who want to follow Jesus need to reconcile these issues. So we'll talk about this a little bit more. Corinth wanted to know, what do I do with my stuff that's on that list? My guess is, is that he's, if you're at church, a lot of the people said, yep, I've done something on that list. You see, the Corinthians were wondering, can I bring things of Christianity and can I add my own things? Remember the culture they came from? It was all about bringing stuff together, bringing religions together and trying to figure this out. So they look here and they say, Paul, how much of Christianity do we need to take? Which part of God's list do we need to take? Can I bring my own list? Is this a merging of lists together? Is this God, Apollo, Aphrodite? Is this God and me? God and Apollo? They were trying to figure that piece out. And here's the challenge, right? Paul, are you saying that God's claims are the only way? And then, Paul, I've got a bigger question for you. What about my feelings? What about my desire? What about my experiences? Remember, this was Greek philosophy at the time, right? It was very experiential. They had just solved the riddle to life, right, in their own minds. Through experience and logic, they said, we know what the best way of living is through experience and logic. And so they say, Paul, we see the list, but what about my experiences? What about my own way of living? What about my desires? How do those fit into this? Paul, what are we supposed to do with that? And Paul, our culture and society has spent a lot of time thinking through this and denying food, drink, and sex are not good and healthy for us. Our best and brightest have helped pave and carve out a philosophy and culture and now our economy that's highly coupled to all of this. Paul, if we follow God's ethos, his, his moral code, and align our lives to his moral plan, won't that be denying my true self? And part of me, if I'm honest, says if I look at that list, there's some stuff on that list I still like. Paul, what do we do with this? You see, I think the question that's being asked is the same one that we tend to ask, or we ask as an L.A. culture as well. What do I do with God's moral code? And what do I do with my own philosophy and thinking? How do those two things reconcile? Or do they reconcile? And here's the short answer. And I love that Paul is clear on this, even though he's incredibly kind as well. The shorter answer is that the God of the Bible... And what Paul is saying is God defines morality and right and wrong. It's not a negotiation. It's not a list of comparisons. It's not a list to pick from. It's not a menu of options, right? Choose from the things of God and match them to your own life. As hard as we might work intellectually and philosophically, we can't move around this truth. And here's why. The Bible teaches that the reason that that exists and the reason why Christianity has been so poignant on this point is this. The Bible teaches that God made us and that the world that he made has been woven with the fabric of God's laws. So if God made us and made the world, didn't he write the code or the rules for human thriving? What makes for good human living? It's not just moral codes. The laws of math, physics, language, biology, relationship are all good. And God created all that. We don't get into a lot of debates, right, over gravity. Well, guess what? God made that, and we follow that rule. If you don't follow that rule, things go very badly quickly. 
He's the God of math as well. Half of you in this room recognize that acutely. When you tried to create some math on a test, only to find out your teacher said, that's not right. And you said, yes, I'm an art major. (laughs) And all you math people, when you drew something and said, isn't this glorious? And your art teacher said, no, not really. (laughs) There, I offended both sides. There you go. We don't have a problem with that. But I think what's difficult here is the problem the Bible describes is that, is that we've rebelled against God in the way we want to do things. The problem is that we and our world were not designed to run on a different set of codes. And our greatest need is not to forge a way around God in his way, but to align and return to what he has made and called us to be or do. We are, we are called to align to God's way and repent. That means turn from our own way, which is sin, and come back to God. See, Corinth at that time had worked really hard to try to discover what good living looked like. And honestly, they probably got some of it right-ish, right? Notice murder's not on the list. I think it's not on the list because they weren't asking about that. They're like, that seems bad. Put that on the not-to-do list, Right? Well, guess what? So did God. So that's good. But then they had a whole bunch of other stuff that was kind of in the uh, pick as you please. But it wasn't just built on like a hedonistic thinking. It was built actually on a very thoughtful approach. If my experience says it's good and my desires want it, it must be good. So much so that they said, if you don't pursue that, you're not living your best life. I think what was often tempting here was they wanted parts of God's way of philosophy, uh, as they philosophically and logically were trying to figure this out. The Corinthians were using observation and experience and reason to find a moral code. And this is where the gospel comes in. And God begins to show them, and Paul begins to write and tell them that this is not a negotiable point. See, our first point here is that Paul states that God claims our... God's claim on morality is broad and non-negotiable. That's why Paul starts it. He's very clear. God's kingdom in his way is non-negotiable. And here are the things that he's not negotiating on. But that's not all. The question still remains, yeah, but Paul... What about my feelings? What about my desires? What am I supposed to do with those? And I want to explore this just for a second because I think this is a really important part for us as Christians to understand. Point number two is this. God's truth allows us to be honest about temptation because God cares about our feelings and desires. Let me say that one more time. God's truth allows us to be honest about our temptations and desires because God cares about our feelings. Here's what I want to do real quick. I introduced this new word called temptation. So I'm going to define it so we can do this together. Here's what temptation means according to the Bible. Temptation is an attraction, enticement, or solicitation either from outside oneself or within yourself 
to act against what God has said to do. All right, so it's an enticement or an attraction, either from within or from out, to do something God didn't say to do. Does that make sense? That's temptation. Let me define sin for a second because I think this is important. Sin is when we choose the enticement over God's way. So this leads us to slicing this theological shishimi a little bit thinner. Yes, you can use that term. (laughs) So is temptation wrong? Well, let's read a couple verses here. James and Hebrews. I'm going to read James first. It says this, Then after desire has conceived, this is the way of sin, it brings forth sin, and when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. So this reality says that when desire, unchecked and moved in the wrong direction, results in sin. And sin ultimately leads to death. So when we stand at this precipice and look at temptation in God's way, when we don't choose God's way, it leads to what? What's it say? death. Is that the way of proper living? Is that thriving in life? It's the opposite. Hebrews 4.15 says this, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness. The high priest is Jesus, by the way. But we have one, that is Jesus, who has been what? Tempted in what? Every way, just as we are, and yet he did not what? you see that Jesus experienced these enticements and attractions to do things God's way? Have you ever thought about that? That Jesus felt temptation, an attraction to do something that wasn't God's way. You see, even Jesus understands what it's like to be standing at that pinnacle of temptation and knowing the enticement. But every time He chose God's way. He never gave in to a temptation. If you look, there's actually portions of Scripture called the Jesus temptation in the wilderness. And even I was just reading through my devotions in Mark, the garden where Jesus begs God, can I do this a different way? I don't want to. If I'm honest, your path right now is filled with hurt and hardship. Is there another way we can do this? And at the end of it, he says this, not my will, but your will be done. And here, standing on this pinnacle, looking at temptation on one side, an enticement to go a different direction, or God's way, he's honest with God and says, I'll be honest, I want to do it differently, but if this is where you've had me to go, that is the direction I'll go. In the Hebrews passage, we see that Jesus empathizes with us in these moments of temptation. He knows and understands. He's been tempted in every way and yet without sin. What does every way mean? It means every way. Go back to that list. He was tempted to sexual sin. He was tempted to sexual sin with a man or a woman. And yet he chose God's path each time. Before you decide to send me angry emails on that last point, (laughs) the verse says he was tempted in every way and yet without sin. And so theologically, we need to have a space in our mind for enticement is not the same thing 
as sin. Because Jesus was enticed in every way, and yet he chose not to do it. So when we've encountered temptation, what do we do with it? If you're a Corinthian looking at this list, you can go, that's clear, Paul, but I kind of like X, Y, Z. That is enticing to me. Here's the reality, too. Some things that are enticing to others are not enticing to me. I don't have a sweet tooth. There is never a problem at my house that I will eat ice cream. I actually do not like ice cream. It's crazy. Yeah, it's a moral problem, I guess, for some, but I don't like it. If there's, as, if there's only a certain number of ice cream sandwiches and there's me left, everyone in my house knows it's fine. Don't worry about it. Dad doesn't want that. If there are French fries, I will fight you to get those. Because I am enticed by french fries, I am not enticed by ice cream. So when you look at this list that Paul has, and you look at the Corinthians, and you make the list even larger to all that God says, I will tell you something. We need to be thoughtful and recognize that just because something entices me and other things don't, we need to have empathy, I think, in those moments to recognize that some people may be struggling with a temptation that doesn't make any sense to us. And yet, we can differentiate between going, we know what it's like to stand at that pinnacle and go, that looks attractive. But I'm not going to choose to follow that because I'm going to choose God's truth for my life because I believe that life Abundant life is following God. Because the Bible says that if I follow this attraction, it'll lead to sin, and sin will lead to death. And so I know that even though it looks good, and my experience and my desire says that I should follow that, I will believe that God's truth is a truthier truth than the truth of my own desire and experience. We do affirm that temptation exists. We do affirm that you are made in God's image. I will go a long way to help you understand or at least agree with you that something is tempting. But we also affirm that if we follow that outside of God's direction, we're going to find ourselves in odds with God and hurting our lives. Does that make sense? I've thought carefully how to say all this because if you say it a little off, It gets off, theologically, I think. I think recognizing that Jesus faced temptation gives me hope. He wasn't someone that walks through life and said, I felt nothing. Temptation, easy. This isn't a God who was like, ice cream for me, ice cream. You put ice cream in front of me, I'm like, I don't care. Just doesn't tempt me, right? It's just not my thing. Jesus was not waltzing through life feeling nothing. And I want to talk about that for a second here. There are two ditches, I think, to temptation, and we want to avoid both of them. Ditch number one is, if I feel a desire, it must be part of my truth. And if I deny myself my truth, my feelings, what I'm I'm experiencing, I'm, I'm denying my own identity. That's not true. That's not true. That's a ditch that says my experience and my own feelings trump what God says. That's not true. Ditch number two is this. If feelings are so dangerous, my goal is to feel nothing. 
I want to experience life numb because I believe that's a better thing to do. By the way, Reed Jesus, one of my favorite professors who taught biblical counseling that I was trained in, was a woman who did a MD, medical degree, and she wrote a book on the emotions of Jesus and the spectrum of his feelings that were never misaligned with God. And so this quest to say, oh, I'd really like to go through life numb because that seems a whole lot easier than dealing with these things that I feel and trying to understand them. Both of these actually deny, I think, a truth of God. See, Jesus says to those who are asking about life, he says this, if you want to understand what following me is, he says this, you must deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow me. That means... That there are moments that we look desire and feelings and temptation in the face and say, yes, you look good, but you're not in line with following God, and so therefore I choose God's way. It means that you have to know what God's way is. I'm going to put a plug in here for Story U and for community groups. Because if you're trying to understand and walking through like a Corinthian going, what do I do with all this? I'm new to Christianity. I just don't understand. Like, am I supposed to keep which part? Help me understand. Story U, which is our story university. It's where we have our classes to be able to say, what does following God look like? How do I do this? How do I get better at this? And our community groups, we spend time training those in those spots to say, how do we present this well? But also, our community groups, how do we take in those well who are raising their hand and going, wait, I'm new. I don't understand. I'm beginning to try to reconcile to God's moral code. And this is all new and confusing to me. By the way, if Paul can do this in Corinthians, Corinth, where people started showing up and going, uh, prostitutes, those are in or out at church. I can't remember. Like, where do we put that in the category, right? Imagine how shocking that would be here. Paul's like, oh, we got this. We can work. We can do life together. Of course you're coming in with all these questions. Of course you are. We want to be patient, and clear, and I'll talk about that in a second. Ditch number two is no better. There was a man, a Puritan man in the 1600s, who was so determined to rid sexual desire from his life as a single guy that one time, while walking, he felt some sort of sexual urge and leapt into a bush of thorns in order to try to like relieve himself of something. I don't know what his thought was, but I can tell you this much. Maybe a better approach would have been thanking God for making him a complex creation and that he was a man of thinking and feeling and sexuality and that pursuing God's way and his thoughts was what was most important rather than hating this reality that he was made a physical, thinking, sexual creature. Now the reality is somebody's going to ask me, where's the line on that? I don't know where the line is on everything. God says that if we entertain thoughts in our head that is already pursuing that path. And so we need to figure out, and we as a culture have not done this particularly well, how do we uphold our sexuality without saying that I must be able to allow to do everything? That's not how we work. So how do we navigate our feelings and thoughts is a really important piece. And I don't have every answer for that, but I do know that if we try to deny that, we're denying who God made us and how he made us. And we don't want to be that way. Point number three, really quickly, and I'm almost done here. God offers new identity for all of us no matter what. 
This isn't the only list that Paul has, right? His list of things that God says, but he also says this, you were washed. Some of you were this way, but you were washed. I think he picked three words really carefully here, right? He could have used a bunch of words that would have been true and right, but he uses the first word washed. This is a reference point to removing of guilt. Think about their church. You get saved, you're part of the Horea. You're like, I've been at that temple, right? Because I was trying to live out what was required of me. Someone else in the church goes, I've been at that temple, but for the opposite reason. There's guilt. It comes with living outside of God's way. And he reminds them that they're washed. That God's way cleans us from the inside out. Second word he uses is sanctified. That's to be made holy. It's worthy of entering worship again. So it's not just washed, but you're a creature of worship. And God wants you to worship. He's looking for your worship. And you're made holy. You can come in and worship. Third, justified. You've been made right. You are in good legal standing. There are no more crimes for you to have to atone for in court. That's a freeing world and a culture that valued religion. You see, Paul uses these terms to help them think through this. Church, this is what God offers us. No matter where you've been, you are offered a new life and a new identity found in Christ. God is not only committed to recrafting our own tapestry, but the fabric that we live in in our culture and society as well. The Corinthian church was not just there to kind of be a part of themselves, but how do they now influence and go into their culture and change it? I love that God gives us new identities, so we simply don't have to be a list of do not do's, but we also get to be a list of, this is who I am new, I am washed, I'm sanctified. And lastly, point number four. Paul's example of engaging the Corinthians is a good example for us to consider. There's four things I think he does. First, he's clear. Second, he's hopeful. Third, he spent a lot of time understanding their culture and was patient. He doesn't walk in the door and just slam them with truth and walk away. He's careful to understand the challenges, where they're coming from. And he sits with them in that moment and is able to shape the gospel to be clearer to their culture. Does that make sense? He shapes the gospel to be clearer to the culture. Now, what I didn't say is he shaped the gospel to not offend culture, but he shaped the gospel to be clear to their culture which is why I love chapter 6 ends this way. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Oh, it's behind me. A temple of the Holy Spirit. Why do you think he used the word temple? Back to our picture. What was their whole city surrounded with? Temples. He's using a reference they'll understand. A temple of the Holy Spirit who is within you, whom you have from God, And that is not of your own, but you've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. I can imagine Paul pointing to the temples surrounded the city, saying, you know what is better than giving your bodies to that worship? He says that you yourselves are where God dwells. You are a center of worship, and that's what God wants. He wants you to be a center of worship. And he uses and gives them a metaphor that they'll be able to understand. 
which is one that says, you've been worshiping at these temples and they've been cruel and they've been hard. And the lists to, to do good life was even harder outside. God's call to you is yes to worship, but you are that temple. You don't need to go to those others anymore. God wants to worship you. No, I'm sorry. God wants you to worship in his temple. Scratch that from the record. God wants you to be a worshiper of him. And this gives great purpose in following and pursuing God's way. Does that make sense? So Paul here is clear. He engages his culture. He doesn't compromise the gospel. He's also very compassionate for those who are coming out of something as he teaches them. All right. Church, I'm going to pray and then these guys will do some awesome singing, I'm sure. God, we thank you for your word. Please bless our day in your name.